Thank you, Richard, and good evening, everyone. It is a real pleasure to be with you. I want to begin by asking you to consider the following scenario. You're at a dinner party, and someone raises the question of religion. They ask you if you are, in fact, religious. Well, you reply hesitantly, I do have a faith. But on your way home, you reflect upon your answer, and you ask yourself, what did I mean by that? What does it mean to have a faith? We live in a world that is horribly confused by the concept of faith. In secular culture, faith is regarded as a mysterious ability to believe the unbelievable. The American TV channel CNN once broadcast a program on Christianity, and its final words were, after all, if you've got the truth, it's not really faith at all, and nearly hurled a Jaffa cake at the screen in irritation. In secular thought, knowledge is a bit like the, the, the sat-nav in your car. But at some point when you, you arrive in some remote part of Ireland, the sat-nav gives up. The road is ended, it's pitch black outside. And faith, we are told, is the insane decision to drive on hoping that the car won't go over a cliff. But even when we step away from secular culture and enter the religious world, we still find a lot of confusion over the concept of faith. Am I a person of faith if I abide by the rules of a religious game? If I choose to inhabit a belief system that brings some order and purpose to my life, does that mean I have genuine faith? The problem I'm raising here is particularly acute for those of us who identify as Protestants. The great cry of the magisterial reformers was sola fides, by faith alone. Our concept of salvation is built on that foundation. We are saved by faith alone, not by works, by faith alone. Now, I happen to believe that truth with all my heart. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or Ephesians uh, 2 verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The idea that we, may, we can be saved not by trying to earn God's favor by doing good works, but by trusting in the finished work of Christ, that single truth has set millions of people free from the guilt and superstitions of work-based religions. But in a sense, all I have done is to amplify the problem. If faith is absolutely central to my salvation, then the question I raised at the start becomes even more haunting. What does it actually mean when I say that I have a faith? Have I just accepted the rules of a religious game? How do I know that my faith is genuine or just a bogus faith that I take care not to examine too carefully? The book of James uh, that we study tonight has a lot to say to religious people who may be confused between bogus faith and genuine faith. The passage I'm going to read with you now is found in the second half of chapter 2, and I must warn you that James is ast astonishingly direct he is quite frank about the possibility that any of us might have a bogus, not a genuine faith. But James is a loving pastor, and we shall see at the end of his uh, tough logic that it brings enormous reassurance into the hearts of God's people. And I think perhaps I'm thinking especially to those here tonight who might be tortured with anxiety over the genuineness of their own faith. To help us understand the key differences between genuine and bogus faith, 
uh, James has given us four illustrations. I'm going to suggest that this entire passage is structured, as you can see on the screen. We are given uh, two examples of bogus faith with the pious hypocrite and then demons, and then we are given two examples of genuine faith, two characters from the Old Testament called Abraham and Ruth. So let's read the passage now together. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The sinful human heart isn't just wicked, it is deceitful. Our sin gives us this amazing ability to deceive ourselves. And self-deception is found more frequently in religious people than in secular people. All human beings have base desires. You know, we have things like pride and jealousy and envy and the love of power. But religious people have a way of disguising those desires by dressing them up in clothes of godly spirituality. We can convince ourselves that we're standing for truth when really we're being narrow-minded and proud. We can deceive ourselves believing that we're being loyal to God's work when in reality we just want revenge or we want power over others. It is a perilous thing to be merely religious. Those of you in the room who suffer from anxiety might now be rather alarmed. If it's so easy for me to deceive myself, how can I possibly know whether or not my faith is genuine or bogus? Well, calm your anxious mind, my brother or sister. James is going to show us two testable characteristics of genuine faith. And you can use them to test the genuineness of your own faith. The first test relates to how we act towards uh, our fellow believers, and the second is about how we feel about God himself. Now, in the original slide that I emailed, there was a rather strange indenting, which I think has been lost uh, in transmission, uh, where the, the two inner ones, two and three, were, were indented. And that's because I think these four stories form an ABBA structure, an ABBA structure. So of the four, the first one, uh, which we read about, the first illustration was that of a pious hypocrite. And the last one, story four, is about a woman called Rahab. And they focus on our relationships with other Christians. Then in the inner circle, uh, that's stories two and three, 
we have two pictures, one of demons and the second of Abraham. And they are all about our inner relationship with God. So I'm going to use that structure uh, for the rest of our study. So we'll think about the first and the last stories as a pair and then move into the inner two. James uh, begins with the story of a religious hypocrite who encounters a member of his local church standing shivering in flimsy clothing on a cold day. The poor man is starving as well as uh, cold. So the hypocrite smiles benignly and offers some utterly useless advice. Shalom, keep warm and be well fed. But he doesn't lift a finger to help. Are those splendid religious words evidence of genuine faith? No, says James. Saving faith must, of its nature, always produce works of charity, especially to our fellow believers. The relationship between faith and works is really very simple. We believe in faith that works. Works do not substitute for faith, but faith, if it is genuine, will always produce works. We preach a gospel of faith that works. And in complete contrast to that example of bogus faith, James finishes with a story from the Old Testament of a woman called Rahab. We encounter her in the book of Joshua. Uh, So let me quickly remind you of her story. The early chapters of Joshua are full of exciting stories about spies and narrow escapes and dangerous treks through enemy territory. Joshua's entire invasion plan depends on taking the fortified city of Jericho and taking it quickly because it controlled access to the whole eastern side of the country. So he sends in what we might call two Mossad agents uh, into Jericho to spy it out. And they discover the vital information that the Canaanites are terrified of Joshua's armies. It's vital that the two agents uh, get back to report to their military commander. To dispel suspicion, they book into a low-class inn, possibly a brothel, run by a Canaanite woman called Rahab. The Hebrew word used to describe Rahab is usually translated prostitute. Whatever she was, Rahab was no shrinking violet cocooned from real life. Anyway, suspicions within the city are raised. Soon the Jericho Gestapo arrive to arrest the two spies. Rahab hides the men under some flax, lies fluently to the authorities, telling them that the spies are making a run for the border. The king of Jericho is deceived. He forms a posse which gallops through the night to the fords, allowing the spies to escape. Now, why on earth does James introduce this ancient story into his argument? Well, it is clear that Rahab converted to faith in the God of Israel. She stepped decisively away from the hideous moral squalor of Canaanite society. Soon afterwards, she is welcomed into Israelite society and treated as an equal. She married a godly Israelite, became a mother and a grandmother, and you can find Rahab in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus himself. But the thing that interests the New Testament most about Rahab is her faith. It highlights her faith on two occasions, this being one of them. At one point in the original story, she says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. So it is clear she had turned away from the worthless idols of that polytheistic society. She had turned to the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, to explain the power of James's illustration here, I want you to think about the story of Rahab from the perspective of the king of Jericho. He would have seen it as an appalling act of treachery. This is the point. Rahab changed sides. She didn't hedge her bets. She didn't equivocate. 
she stopped being an enemy of God and joined herself to the people of God. Rahab's faith is evident in that risky, costly loyalty that she showed to the people of God. So, now when we put the first story and the last story together, I suggest we see the first of our two big hallmarks of genuine faith. The bogus faith of the pious hypocrite offered nothing but words to a suffering believer. But faith, if it is genuine, will be seen in costly loyalty to the people of God. If your faith is genuine, then you won't have a foot in two camps. Your primary loyalty will be to God and his people. And that loyalty will be evidenced by the way you invest your life in God's people, by the way you defend your fellow Christians against attack. There are men and women in some churches in our country who have a bogus faith, I'm afraid to say. Some of them have impressive sounding religious titles. Some even wear expensive regalia to mark them out as leaders of their ecclesiastical institutions. And their lips drip with honeyed words about care for the oppressed. But they display no real loyalty to the people of God. A desire for intellectual respectability or the approval of cultural leaders in society means that all too often they sneer at the simple-minded Christians in their pews while enjoying the company of the metropolitan elite. And so their faith is bogus. In James's language, it is dead because the life of God is not flowing through their lives. They're little more than Lib Dems in cassocks. Of course, the form of bogus faith like that can be found in lots of places, even in youth groups associated with this church. So let me gently challenge the young people in the room. Have you changed sides decisively? Do you stand loyally with the people of God, or are you trying to have a foot in both camps? Well, I'm going to tell you the thing is impossible. You cannot have genuine faith if your primary desire is for approval from the world. If you can't follow Rahab and make a decisive change of sides, then over time your faith will be shown up to have been bogus. You may say religious words, you may still follow the rules of a little religious game, but you won't have the genuine article. Now, being loyal to the people of God is hard work because most of us are not easy to love. We can be awkward and ungrateful and badly behaved. But this is your family. We are your brothers and sisters. And familial loyalty is one of the two key hallmarks of genuine faith. Of course, there are times when we irritate each other. But when the chips are down, family is family. Remember that when someone becomes a Christian, they don't just commit to Christ. They commit to the body of Christ. The Christian life cannot be lived alone. It must be a communal thing. And that crucial feature of Christian living has been sorely tested in these days. The pandemic accelerated the drive towards living privatized lives, lives where relationships are mediated through technology. Churches are under pressure in this society because the whole notion of community is under pressure in society. So it's vital that the young adults in this fellowship stand together. You don't need to be best pals or live in each other's pockets but work hard to build up family loyalty. Remember whose side you're on, because genuine faith always manifests itself in costly loyalty to the people of God. Let's now turn our attention to the two inner stories in our structure. Here the emphasis is not, is not so much on our relationships with other people. James' focus on how, is now on how faith changes our relationship with God. 
Let me set out my stall up front, and then I'll justify it. Bogus faith never brings about real peace with God. But genuine faith develops friendship with God. James takes the utterly shocking idea that demons have a form of faith in the sense that they believe there is one God. Demons are monotheists. Did you know that? They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They even recognize his authority. And they certainly believe in heaven and hell. But notice how ineffective this so-called faith is. Whenever they think of God, they shudder. Now, in complete contrast, James then introduces us to the man called Abraham. To explain the apostle's thought flow here, because it's very densely argued, I need to make the rather obvious point that Genesis chapter 15 comes before Genesis chapter 22. Allow me to explain that cryptic point. In Genesis 15, God promises Abram that he will become the father of a great nation. He brings Abraham out one night, tells him to look up into the night sky, and tells him to try and count the stars. So shall your descendants be, Abraham. Now, I'm sure that promise made Abraham blink, because both he and his wife were childless and very, very old. In natural human terms, the thing was impossible. But Abraham genuinely believed that there is more to reality than biology and chemistry, and Scripture tells us that he believed God, and that act of faith was credited to him as righteousness. And you may have noticed that James quotes that Scripture in verse 23 of our passage. Now, the Apostle Paul, when laying out his great uh, description of the gospel in the book of Romans, spends an entire chapter on how Abraham was justified by faith alone uh, from Genesis chapter 15. Now, the interesting thing to note here is that James does not use the birth of Isaac. He doesn't use that story from 15 as his case study for Abraham's faith. He doesn't take us to Genesis 15. He takes us to an incident much later in Abraham's life recorded in chapter 22. And that famous chapter records how God asks Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Abraham, even though his heart must have been filled with dread, obeyed God. But just as his hand was about to plunge the knife into Isaac, God stops him and provides a ram as a substitute. Now, the particular chronology of Abraham's life may not excite you, but it is important because at first sight, it looks as if James is contradicting the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 24. A person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That sounds like heresy. That's why Martin Luther called this book of the Bible an epistle of straw. Just one of the many regrettable statements to come from Luther's mouth. In fact, there is no contradiction here. Remember, Paul was arguing against the idea that we can achieve salvation by our works. He's countering the oldest idea in the religious handbook, that I have to achieve a sufficient number of brownie points uh, to have any chance of avoiding divine judgment. Now, James is not remotely concerned with that argument at all. He takes it as read. He takes it for granted. His concern is to distinguish genuine faith from bogus faith. And his point is that genuine faith always produces an outflow of good works. Christian faith is faith that works. John Calvin put it quite elegantly when he said, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. So the two apostles are simply dealing with separate issues. Paul counters a work-based salvation. James counters bogus faith. In actual fact, the Apostle Paul 
uh, backs James's point up perfectly in Galatians 5, 6. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. So we are justified by faith, but the mark of genuine faith is that it leads to works. Now, that general principle is all very well, but we're still left with the question, why, why exactly is James introducing this story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac at this point in his argument? Abraham had a genuine faith. We all know that. We're told it explicitly in Genesis 15. So what's the point of that terrible story in Genesis 22? Well, let me now quote you the opening words from James's epistle. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, is he testing Abraham's faith? Well, why is he doing that? An anxious believer might be alarmed at that. Was God not sure if Abraham's faith was genuine? No and no and no to that question. God knew that Abraham's faith was genuine, but Abraham needed to learn that Abraham's faith was genuine. It was only by testing the genuine article in the crucible of suffering that Abraham's relationship with God could be deepened. Genesis 22 is one of those passages in Scripture which have been subjected to truly horrific interpretations. All sorts of critics and philosophers have tried to mangle the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac to fit in with their preconceived notions of faith. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard invented that terrible phrase, the leap of faith. Bah! He argued that in Genesis 22... God was asking Abraham to sacrifice reason. Reason itself, because for him, faith was always unreasonable. What a load of old tosh. But in fact, the text teaches the very opposite of Kierkegaard's interpretation. Remember, Abraham knew better than anyone that Isaac was a supernatural event. He wasn't an ordinary boy born in the ordinary way. Isaac's very existence was a vindication of God's faith in God, who is beyond nature. That's the lesson of Genesis 15. And Isaac also represented the reality that God keeps his promises. For many years, Abraham had been taught these truths by God. He had real, tangible evidence that God's promise to bless the world through Isaac was something that could be relied upon. So, says the writer of Hebrews, Abraham reasoned, note that word, he reasoned that God would raise Isaac from the dead. So we should never see Genesis 22 as some servile creature trying to placate a capricious deity through child sacrifice. This was an act of faith. Abraham was trusting God to bring him and Isaac through this terrible moment. And I suggest that interpretation makes sense. It makes sense of Abraham when he says these astonishing words, we go to worship. Even in this darkest moment, Abraham resolves to tell the God of the universe, the God who had proven his utter consistency to him, he goes to tell God what he thinks of him. It was David Gooding who put it so poignantly, Abraham goes to tell God what he thinks of God. The old man knew that he would have eons of time to worship God in the sunshine of heaven, but he resolves to do it now in the darkness and dread of this fallen world. Now in this terrible place, 
he goes to worship. And so we can now begin to understand the Apostle James' reason for using this case study. As a result of his testing, Abraham, James says, became God's friend. Abraham was a father who had to face the prospect of sacrificing his dearly beloved son. And that test brought him close to the heart of God the Father, who one day would sacrifice his dearly beloved son. So Abraham could share that profound experience with God himself. God was opening up his heart to the man. In the original language of Genesis 22, God's words are really tentative. It's as if God is saying, Abraham, would you, would you mind doing this for me, please? Now, let's contrast that genuine faith with the so-called faith of demons. A mere intellectual assent to monotheism or an acceptance of certain doctrines will do nothing for your relationship with God. You will have no peace with God. The prospect of meeting him will still make you shudder. But a genuine faith like Abraham's, when it is tested, will draw forth worship and a deeper first-person knowledge of God. It develops friendship with God. So there we have it. James' four illustrations have shown us the two key hallmarks of genuine faith. So I close by applying them now to any anxious heart in the room. First, genuine faith always manifests itself in costly loyalty to the people of God. I remember an old hymn which asks questions uh, about this matter. And you may want to answer these questions in the quietness of your own mind as I quote the first few lines. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Who will be his helpers, others' lives to bring? Who will leave the world's side? Who will face the foe? Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him will go? So that's the first test. Second, genuine faith produces friendship with God. Through times of testing, our first-person subjective knowledge of God deepens. Instead of shuddering at the thought of encountering God, we gradually become friends with Him. We come to know and appreciate Him, to love Him and enjoy fellowship with Him. Now, perhaps you have only taken early steps in either of those dimensions. Being loyal to the people of God is a hard habit to learn, and perhaps you're only getting started. And the idea of becoming a friend of God seems like a long way off. But that's what you want. You would love to make progress in both dimensions. But what if your faith feels insufficient to that journey? Well, come again to that scene in Mount Moriah. At the end of the story, what name did Abraham give to the place of sacrifice? Did he call it the mountain where my faith triumphed? I think not. Genesis says, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. God provided a sacrifice that makes up for any and all of our shortcomings. And so quieten your anxious heart with that thought. The Lord has provided. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. And so even if your emotional state does not generate any reassurance that your faith is genuine, God already knows that it is. If you genuinely want to be loyal to God's people, 
If you sincerely want to know God as friend, then Christ will make up the shortfall. The Lord will provide. Of course, the Apostle James' two tests may have revealed that you are merely religious. If you feel no need to show costly loyalty to God's people, if you privately recoil from the thought of encountering God, then you have a bogus faith. And it's my duty to tell you that abiding by the rules of a religious game will not save you, nor will mere intellectual assent to a set of doctrines. Genuine faith is faith in a person, trust in a person. So it's vital that perhaps as you travel home from this service, driving in your car, you ask yourself, do I have genuine faith? Let's pray, and then I'll hand back to Richard for our final hymn. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that our salvation is by faith alone, sola fides. We thank you that by trusting in the finished work of Christ, by throwing ourselves on our mercy, rather than seeking to, be, uh, to, to gain enough merit with you to merit salvation, we can say, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And we bless you for that wonderful truth, that we can be saved, that we can receive purpose and significance and no value in our lives. We can have a hope of heaven, a hope that transcends all our fears. We can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. We can be healed. All because of the finished work of Christ. But Father, we're conscious that it is so easy for the religious heart to deceive itself. And so we pray that the two tests from the book of James would be applied into each of our hearts to test whether or not our faith is genuine. We pray, Father, that you would um, make that clear to us, to give us discernment, to give us intellectual honesty, so that those of us who as yet do not have genuine faith, who as yet have not received the life of God flowing through them and in them, that they would come to Christ for salvation. And Father, for those of us who do know and love you, it is our longing that our faith would be evidenced by our works. Thank you that true, genuine faith is faith that works. So we pray that we would be known as a community which is loyal to each other, which loves each other, which looks out for each other. And we would be known as a people who know God, who respect him, who love him deeply, who appreciate his character. And we just take time as we close to walk in the footsteps of old Abraham and to worship you for the God that you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for your great benevolence, your kindness and generosity. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your incalculable loyalty to us. And we thank you, God, the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his purity, his gentleness. And it is uh, our delight, Father, to know fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that that would be a reality in our hearts this night. In Jesus' name, amen.